some of the smartest companies that I know of are the ones who took very limited venture capital funding. They took it for a specific reason, um, and they were very conscious of the fact that they weren't going to try and give away a massive percentage of their company's equity. Welcome back to another episode of the FinTech at IU podcast, a podcast about all things FinTech, specifically tailored towards college students. Today, we are speaking with Greg Palmer, the VP and Director of FinTech Strategy at the Finnovate Group. Greg, would you like to introduce yourself? Hey, yeah, thanks for having me. So yeah, I, I host the Finnovate events. I also host the popular Finnovate podcast, and I chat with quite a few FinTech professionals on an annual basis. For those of you who haven't heard about Finnovate before, we are the demo first showcase of new innovations in financial technology and a massive number of incredibly successful companies have made their debut on our stage and we're really pleased to be able to keep that trend going. So it's a fun event and I enjoy chatting with students such as yourselves and happy to have this conversation today. So what's the, what's a key difference between um, you and a, a conference like Money 2020 or FinTech Meetup? Yeah, so I mean, the biggest difference is that we take innovative technology and we actually put it on display in a sink or swim environment. Companies get just seven minutes to demo their live technology. And when we say demo, we mean a live demo. No PowerPoint slides, no canned video. Your technology has to work. And obviously that seven minute timeline is not a ton of time to operate within. So that's the biggest. The other piece that sets Finnovate apart is we tend to be an event that's a little bit smaller and more focused on that senior executive audience as opposed to some of our competitors. So you've actually done a lot of coaching for uh, pitches, whether it be Infinivate or other events that, that founders are coming in and pitching and, and showing people what they're all about. Yeah, absolutely. So we're aware that our format's a little bit of a challenge for a lot of companies. It's not something that they're comfortable with. It's not something that they're used to. And so we try and make the event a little bit easier by giving them a little support, telling people how best to use those seven minutes and leaning on some of the expertise that we've been able to glean over the course of you know the decade plus that we've been running this show. We've got a really good sense of what it takes to capture audience attention, use that audience attention effectively, and ultimately use your presentation as a means to pull people in to who want to learn more about the technology that they just saw. So, Greg, I got to ask, what what innovations out of the 2,500 or so you've seen since you started at Finnovate, what are the top two that you've seen throughout all those years? Ooh, man, that's an impossible question because if I answer it, there's going to be so many people that I know who are going to say, well, what about mine? But I think, you know, some of the, when I, when I talk to my friends, people kind of outside of the fintech ecosystem, and they say, what exactly is financial technology? The one that I always kind of highlight is the technology used to capture a check on a mobile and deposit it straight from your phone. That technology debuted at Finnovate a little while ago. Um, that's a really kind of easy one for, for people to understand and, and grab onto. Um, I think the other ones that I really have enjoyed a lot, there's a lot of work being done in the financial inclusion space where people are looking at alternative forms of credit scoring, looking at how they can expand the universe of people who they're able to lend to. I think those are really cool technologies as well. There's a few different companies who are working on that. Um, but again, there's so many other areas that have been really interesting and, and so many places where the financial services industry has really needed major overhauls. And so it's been really fun to see over the course of the last 15 years how the entire industry has leveled up. 
So that's kind of interesting. You bring up the point of credit scores because our third episode was actually with Alex Johnson, who you may know, um, mm -hmm. absolute legend in the industry. And he got his career started at a small startup in, in Bozeman uh, that actually worked um, in credit markets. And then he was pretty big in, in, in FICO. Um, and I just wanted to see if you had any thoughts on what could possibly replace a credit score, because the credit score is made for one thing, and that is determining how credit worthy a customer is. There's a lot of firms going out there now that are saying that the credit score is deprecated and has a lot of bias in it, and we're going to try to replace it. But ultimately, we haven't seen much success in that realm yet. Yeah, well, certainly a credit score is a very imperfect tool. And for a long time, it was the best tool that banks had available to them. And it was based on factors that really uh, were, you know, the information that people had. But it's clearly imperfect. And there's massive numbers of people who are categorically excluded from access to basic financial services because they don't have a credit history. You know, they didn't have somebody when they were young who could co-sign a credit card with them um, to help them build a credit history or people who are coming uh, from other countries uh, or who have parents who come from another country. You, you know, thin file or no file credit customers is obviously a real challenge. But at the end of the day, the credit score is really designed to answer a very simple question, which is, are you going to pay us back? You know, yeah. that's really the only thing that matters. And there are a lot of factors that really can indicate how likely somebody is to pay you back that are completely ignored by modern credit scores. And there are also a lot of factors that go into uh, FICO score, for example, that are not actually that relevant. And the more we can use technology, and this is an area where artificial intelligence plays a really key role, Human beings will always be biased. Uh, you know, that's that's kind of one of those things which unfortunately is is the reality. Yeah. But it, an artificial intelligence system doesn't have those same biases necessarily. It can, right? They can be baked in there by human biases, but not it's not something that will always exist. And so, you know, they're able to look more dispassionately at some of these folks who have been excluded and say, actually, this person is there's so many indicators that say they're a really good bet to pay you back. You can lend comfortably to that person. Um, and, and so, you know, I would say it's not a perfect system yet. There's no kind of one right answer, but certainly there are companies that we're aware of that we've seen on stage at Finnovate who are doing amazing things and pushing closer and closer to a new ideal, which will ultimately bring a lot of people into the fintech or sorry, the financial ecosystem. Why, why dump FICO entirely when, when FICO could just innovate and start implementing a new scoring model or things that take into account some of these new criteria that you mentioned? Well, I think that's up to FICO, right? I think it's up to them to decide, you know, are we going to change the metrics that we have in place? And if there was an interest on their part to move towards that direction, I think the industry would respond really positively. As it stands right now, there hasn't been you know, something along those lines, at least that I'm aware of, where they've started taking steps in those areas. And it's left the door open for other players to come in and say, actually, we have a better model. Now, long term, you know, the jury's still out. Is the, Are those models actually better? Tough to say at this point based on the data that we've seen so far, but certainly the door is open. And this is one of the things that we've seen in the fintech ecosystem over and over again. There are incumbent players who leave a gap 
gap for other people to come in and the other new new companies will come and exploit that gap and will in, innovate and try and come up with new ways to solve those challenges if the incumbents are able to play defense if they're able to respond to that and you know kind of plug some of those holes themselves they'll have a massive advantage but in many cases they don't do that they aren't capable of doing that or they're just not interested in doing that and so that continues to leave these gaps that other companies and other technologies will come in and fill I mean, from what I've seen, I think that people who oppose credit scores and just don't like that concept in general are people that are non-prime investors. And all of them, especially in my generation, from what I've seen, they're turning towards BNPL. They're turning towards that buy now, pay later system. And I, th I think that in general, there's so many people out there that are that that really want that that quick money. We, like James, we've talked about this so many times with this instant gratification phenomenon. And I think that BNPL is an exact replication of that. Yeah, well, I mean, BNPL is a tricky one because it obviously is very popular among certain groups. Yeah. It's a way to kind of get access to credit without having to go through a lot of the processes that you might normally have to in order to get access to that credit. But at the same time, you know, ultimately that's technology that really only serves to kind of, you know, bring people into debt at the end of the day, right? It's easier to extend yourself if you have access to BNPL solutions, which isn't to say that there aren't people who are using it responsibly. Of course there are. The majority of people are using it responsibly, but BNPL is not actually you know, anything that's that new in fintech. There's always been people who've been working on ways to bring consumers into debt more quickly. You know, some of the early companies that we would see would have you know, micro loans that would be available. You can text somebody, you get a loan back in 15 minutes, and next thing you know, you're locked into a 30% interest rate for the next five years. You know, one mistake in 15 minutes, and you're kind of in the web. That side of things has always existed, and it will probably always exist. But at the end of the day, I think the question we get in the fintech industry have to ask is, how well are consumers served? by that kind of technology, it doesn't actually make you able to afford more. It just makes you feel like you can afford more in the short term. And potentially there are some long-term ramifications that aren't so pleasant. Yeah, I remember when I first heard about BNPL, there was so much hype surrounding it last year. And I think that the biggest thing is, is it looks so harmless on the surface. And I think it's just it just gets so addicting because instead of traditional credit products where there's you have a credit report, there isn't that for BNPL. And I think at least with credit cards, most of them have, I think, a $2,000 credit limit, something like that, As and you also accrue late fees over time. So, I mean, I would say that the, the hype has definitely gone away, and I think you've seen that with so many companies in that space. I think one that comes to the top of my mind is, uh, I think, Clara, I think that's what it's called. Have you heard of that? Pardon? No, I, I I think of uh, a firm. A firm as yeah. being one of the major players in the BNPL space. But a firm has shot up in in stock value. I don't know if you've seen that or not, but they've been exploding lately. I don't think they've they have been positive. Uh, oh, they've been come. very positive. They've been positive. Yeah. Income. I don't. I don't know. Yeah, I, mean, I think for me, the there are many companies that kind of offer similar technologies, and it can be difficult for um, consumers to understand the differences between BNPL providers. At the end of the day, most of those contracts are actually going to be organized through retailers themselves. So it's not that the consumer will have a choice, but the retailer will decide who they've partnered with from a BNPL standpoint. So a lot of the difference that you see in terms of how successful those companies are 
actually boils down to their marketing teams, how aggressive their business development teams are at closing some of those retail partners. Um, it's not necessarily an indication of how strong the technology is, um, although certainly, you know, the companies that are doing well have very strong technology. But in, in many cases, it's actually about the work that they do around that technology that will ultimately determine how widely used their technology is and how successful they are. I think the major flaw of BNPL is that there is little recourse compared to a credit card for some of these companies who uh, end up issuing this credit. Um, the, the main way that BNPL companies make their money is through a partnership with a retailer. The, the entire business model is we can increase your sales because we can make uh, it easier for a consumer to purchase your, your goods. Um, and because of that, we're gonna get maybe a five, to 10% kickback of every sale that we do with, with our product. So it's a little different than interest because a lot of these firms can offer products without interest. Um, <clears throat> what I'm trying to say is that <clears throat> sometimes these firms struggle when, when recessionary times hit because there is little recourse. Um, when you have a credit card, you're paying interest on top of it. Plus there's a threat of this being put on your credit report, which Experian and other credit bureaus have started to uh, disallow uh, credit lines under a certain amount to prevent a lot of junk fees now. Yeah, I mean, the question of who pays for it is always a really important one to pay attention to. And so, you know, it, it, you're exactly right. Retailers are the ones who are ultimately deciding, you know, I want to pay this company because I believe it will make it possible for people to buy products that they wouldn't otherwise have purchased on my platform. Um, now, again, your credit cards are doing something similar, only they're uh, retailer agnostic. It, it allows you to purchase something that you really can't afford at the moment. Um, but the question is, you know, who actually covers that risk? And so with a credit card, it's very simple. The credit card absorbs that risk. If you default on a credit card payment, um, they are the ones who ultimately bear that responsibility, which is why they need to be really cautious about who they can extend credit to from a uh, BNPL standpoint, the majority of them are really volume plays. They accept that risk as a matter of course. There's not necessarily a recourse that they have, but they understand that the, you know, the data would suggest exactly how many people are going to default on some of those payments. Um, they kind of take that in, build it into the pricing model. And ultimately, it is the retailers who absorb most of that risk through the fees that they pay for that company. So, um, but again, at the end of the day, you know, how different from a consumer standpoint is a BNPL solution from a credit card? solution. The fact that you don't have to pay interest on it is obviously important, but it's still a very similar function at a high level, which is it allows you to purchase something that you couldn't otherwise have purchased. So ultimately, it's a you know a unique way of doing it, but it's not ultimately solving a problem that wasn't solved before. Isn't that making the situation worse, though? Uh, which situation? Just in general, if you if if people that that are mainly targeted in this demographic of BNPL are non-prime investors, and then they're just people with bad credit scores who can't generally pay loans, and and they're they're instilling this concept of BNPL, which they they feel is free money, and and then you are going out and putting yourself even further in debt, isn't that worsening the issue? And BNPL is saying you're trying to solve the issue so there's a huge juxtaposition there and and the thing is like credit card debt has gone up through the roof the, the latest fred data shows over 1.1 trillion dollars in consumer debt which is uh, quite unprecedented especially with the 21.5 percent average rate for those those loans as well yeah. Oh, I think this is one of the big challenges that the financial services industry has in general, right? There are responsible ways to use these products, 
but many of them do seem like they're designed almost to take advantage of people who are going to use them irresponsibly. And, and that's, it, there's a serious potential danger there for people who are addicted to that rush of, you know, it feels good to buy something. It's good to order mm -hmm. something online. You get some mail showing up, to, um, you know, opening up that box when you come home is a good feeling. And it's very easy to kind of distract yourself from other challenges or issues that you may be facing in your life by engaging in retail therapy, right? And so there are people for whom it's really difficult to avoid that temptation. And it is true that people who are who fall into that camp are going to have a really difficult time um, if, if they overextend themselves. And again, it's just so easy to overextend yourself. And, and so that's, I think, one of the really big challenges that everybody has to be aware of. And, you know, the question then becomes, you know, how much do you trust the people who provide this service? Are they operating from the standpoint of, you know, we're trying to make your life a little bit easier so you, you can spread this payment out? Are they operating from the standpoint of we want to make it easier to get yourself into debt as quickly as you can? And, you know, that's that's a debate, which I think is, um, you know, people, everybody will have their own different their own different angle on it. But certainly the people that I've talked to on our podcast and at our events um, have been very conflicted about it. And there are a lot of different uh, opinions and perspectives on it, which is, again, very easy to see how how those opinions could be different. I always hearken back to the example that uh, Goldman Sachs has uh, with, with the Apple card. Uh, the Apple card, I think, is very different than any other credit card out there because it's so easy to pay it off. And Apple's UI is just so intuitive that it's kind of biting Goldman Sachs in the ass. <laughs> Yeah, Goldman Sachs maybe didn't fully understand what they were getting into there, but hey, that'll be yeah. fine. They can afford it. <laughs> I, I told I told Eric earlier today that their CEO is actually a DJ, <laughs> and he didn't believe yeah. me. <laughs> People gave him shit for that, that he was uh, going out and DJing. Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah, the Goldman Sachs CEO is, is actually a, a DJ, <laughs> David Solomon. <laughs> this is why I don't go clubbing when I go to New York, just in case I end up inadvertently going to a club where there's some CEO play acting as a <laughs> we're DJ. We're David, <laughs> David Sullivan's DJ. Oh, my yeah. gosh. Yeah. I guess I'll just circle back to um, the issue that the U.S. is in and with, with debt. It's not just a consumer thing. It's also the U.S. government um, that is in a tremendous amount of debt. How, how sustainable is this fundamentally? And, and are there going to be broader headwinds in the general devaluation of debt? Uh, if we look at long-term treasuries, they hit their all-time valuation. And then now they're peak to trough down about 55%, which is completely unprecedented now. Is, is debt losing its value in a way? Well, so now we're going to dabble in some areas where we're kind of at the edge of my expertise. I'll think back to some of the macroeconomic classes I would have taken when I was in a similar position to yourselves. But um, I certainly wouldn't call myself an expert on this this type of topic. But I, I do think that there are some significant pain points that are coming, right? And, and I think, again, there's many of these situations which you see brewing, which you think, how are we going to find a way out of these kind of problems? And technology is one answer, right? There are various things that technology can do to play a role. But, but here's also where I would say say, you know, th this is why I get so excited by um, the fintech ecosystem in general and by talking to students such as yourselves. There are these massive problems that are out there and they, these problems aren't going away. And whenever you have these kind of problems, there's an opportunity for somebody to come in there with a good idea who can use technology to do something and actually help to create a difference there. And so you know, I think when I think about
about you know, what I, what advice would I give to students who are considering a, a fintech career? I would say look for the biggest problem you can find and think, mm-hmm. how can I actually make a difference here? There are always going to be people who are going to optimize bank experiences, reduce inefficiencies, you know, make your banks marginally more profitable. But the big, big picture uh, fintech opportunities are going to come from these kind of big picture problems. Yeah, I think the biggest problem, at least from what I've seen in the fintech space, is that there are so many banks that just have a hard time keeping up with all these hurdles. I don't know if you saw, but BCG put out this report, I think, a year ago or so. And then they said that the top 50 most technologically innovative companies were, of course, the Teslas, the Apples, the Amazons, and so on. But I think that for these banks, because they don't have that that tech advantage there, it, it's so much harder for them because there's so many regulatory expectations. They're just being able to, you can't break things in a bank. You can't, you can't fall. You can't pick yourself up like that. Mm-hmm. James, do you have any thoughts? Well, I, I think that the banks are some of the most regulated uh, institutions in all the world. Um, and I think that what that causes is a lack of innovation, which is why we've seen the banking as a service model take off so much in particular. Uh, banking as a service tries to circumvent a lot of those regulations that are placed on banks and they innovate through technology, but they put some of the regulatory onus back on the banks who are already experts at dealing with that regulatory onus. Yeah, well, and I think you know banks are necessarily heavily regulated. I think that's true. But at the same time, you it's it's easy to kind of use that as an excuse and say, oh, well, we can't do things differently than we have done because you know regulatory hurdles and blah blah blah. Um, and, and there is truth to that. But at the same time, banks can do more than they're mm-hmm. doing right now. There's yeah. a lot of opportunities that they have. The honest truth is that they haven't felt the pressure to do that. And they're starting to, you know, you saw in the pandemic, a lot of people's consumer behaviors shifted. Um, and as, as banks really look at, you know, their aging customer bases and how they can go in and attract newer, younger customers, there is a reckoning coming. And there are banks who are going to be able to deal really well with that, who have been able to take those steps and say, yes, we can change some things. And then the banks who have been saying, you know, actually, well, we can't do it for this reason. We can't update things for that reason. Those are the banks that are going to fail. And there are going to be massive numbers of financial institutions that are going to fail over the next five or 10 years. Everybody in the industry knows that. The question then becomes, how do you make sure that you're one of the banks that survives? And the answer is you can actually do more. And we've seen banks who are doing more, being rewarded by the marketplace for doing that. Um, banking as a service is a really cool way to kind of you know make somebody regulatorily compliant in a, in a short time frame. We see a lot of fintechs who are engaging with banks in that way. Um, and we've seen small community banks who've been able to dramatically increase their reach and their customer bases by engaging with technology. So, you know, I think this is one of those areas where there is some truth to the idea that regulation kind of does put a tamper on innovation. But at the end of the day, it's it's much more overused as an excuse. And it's used by people who don't want to actually tackle the hard work of mm-hmm. updating processes because they are afraid to do it, they can't be bothered to do it, or they are gonna retire in four years and just don't care. And I'll just go ahead and open up a can of worms with that regulatory piece. Does does regulation even work? Because we we had 2008 where people said, oh, you know, ninja loans, all this stuff that's gonna, that's gonna happen because we want money. And now we passed the Dodd-Frank Act, we, we reformed the banks, and now 2021 SBB happens. Well, I mean, you can regulate all you want, but if someone's a bad actor, they're going to do whatever the hell they want regardless. Well, I would say, you know, what happened with SVB is very different from what happened in 2008. And I would push back hard on the idea that SVB was a bad actor. 
Um, I think that they were, uh, you know, they, they serve a very useful role in the ecosystem. Um, they are massively helpful for the innovation economy. So I think that there were some things, you know, not to dissect it too much, but there are some areas where, you know, they got a little bit unlucky. Um, there were some social media uh, posts, which actually really contributed to a massive run on the bank. No bank can sustain a run on the bank. If you get to a point where a huge number of customers are all starting to pull their money out, no bank survives that. Um, but it's it's a very different circumstance than what we saw in 2008, um, 2007 really, where you have this you know entire industry that's operating basically unethically. And so you know regulation can work. It's imperfect. Um, and one of the things that we really looked for at our events is to try and bring the regulators into the equation as well. The more the regulatory agencies communicate with the innovators, the easier it is for everybody to move forward in a way that's responsible, but still allows for people to push forward. For a long time, there wasn't this kind of conversation happening between the regulators. And, and now we see people from the CFPB coming to Finnovate. They're engaging with the technologists there. This is something which is relatively new, but it really does make a huge difference as those regulators understand the technologies more, they understand the high level goals of what people are trying to accomplish. It makes it easier for them to advance uh, new technologies in a safe and responsible way. You know, there's also there's a political side of this conversation as well. Um, you know, I think if you look at uh, there, what's the similarity in 2007, 2008 to the similarity, you know, end of 2020, um, there's a very clear difference in, in who's, you know, who, who the administrators are, what their priorities are. When you weaken regulatory agencies, you handicap regulatory agencies, which was an explicit goal of the Trump administration, you do open yourself up for, for problems. But again, I would say that, you know, SVB is, is not, in my opinion, in any way a bad actor so so just to harken back to svb because i want to be sure that that i fully understand the picture because i might not be fully aware of, of what happened the general public consensus with svb is that sv or sb uh, sam bankman fried and caroline ellison were entirely bad actors and that they did things maliciously there were various text messages released about in the trial um people are making fun of the trial and saying that, oh, these guys deserve it and that they they were entirely bad actors. So uh, what are what are some of the things that people get wrong in that realm when it comes to the failure of Silicon Valley Bank? Well, I think, and this is a really complex equation, right? And, and nobody really knows what happened inside SVB except for the people who lived it and they aren't talking, right? So it's it will, we can only guess at it from the outside. But there are some instances where you know, prominent venture capitalists were directing the companies that they had invested in who banked with an SVB to withdraw their funds. And, and what that created was a situation where you know, a couple of venture capitalists who really carry an outside amount of sway that, who had you know, numbers of companies in their portfolios that they then said, actually, now's the time to pull your money out. It created this rush on the bank. And in the course of you know, an afternoon, um, you know, huge numbers of people wanted the deposits back. The bank became insolvent very quickly. But they've since been, uh, SVB has since been acquired. Um, and with the backing of a new financial institution, the vast majority of their customers have come back in, have opened up their accounts. The bank is actually still continuing. Um, I believe it's Coastal Community Bank now who who owns mm. them. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the majority of the customers, the majority of the investments that the bank had made were, were prudent, were strong. 
Um, and there were some issues that, you know, they, it, it, when, when you engage with the innovation economy, you're going to take more risk necessarily. You know, when, you, when you're a bank for startups, you know that startups are going to fail at a higher rate than um, other, other businesses are. But the core value proposition, the core business model of SVB survives and is still profitable. And so it's, you know, and again, this is where you start to reach the limit of, of what actually happened there. But a lot of the folks that I've talked to really think that it was um, social media played a really big role in creating this rush on the financial institution where all of a sudden, you know, in the space of one day, massive numbers of customers were pulling their money out and they were pulling their money out because of advice that they got from people that they trusted from the venture capitalists who are actually bankrolling their own companies. Yeah, it's crazy to see that that effect of social media because it's it's like once you once you pull the genie out of the bottle, you can't put it back in. And I, I think that uh, it, that whole SVB process and that that whole event, that whole scenario, I think it taught a lot of banks that they needed a new playbook, that they needed to be able to risk mitigate. And I think that's why banks like ClearBank they they are they are merging as in popularity because they're partnering with developing firms and different financial institutions to serve more clients. And I think that that broad picture and diversifying your portfolio is just so important. And yeah. another piece of that was that SVB was was entirely or almost entirely large corporate deposits, um, which when you have large corporate deposit flight at once, it's a lot more risky than being a, a, a bank that's more diversified, like you said, uh, with some consumer, with some potentially government, um, a lot of you know healthy bond um, and, and investment portfolio, uh, which SVB some would say that they they were very uh, over leveraged as well in their users' deposits. Yeah, I mean, again, this is kind of the inherent risk that a bank like SVB will will take on. Um, but you know, a lot of the companies that we saw who who come to Finnovate, we deal with companies who are in the startup ecosystem who uh, bank with SVB all the time. Um, and SVB is very good at managing this type of customer relationship. It's difficult for a bank to actually handle kind of a, a company who's engaging with venture capital, who's got you know the cash flow issues that some startups have. SVB is very good at, at dealing with those pieces. I think you could say you know, potentially they overextended themselves in areas like around you know the crypto space. Potentially, um, I think you know SVB was not obviously directly connected to FTX, but they were kind of caught up in some of the fallout the industry-wide fallout there. Um, but again, it's one of those things where, you know, consumer sentiment plays such a massive role in the health of a financial institution. And the way that a uh, bank's customers feel about that bank is immensely important. And so this is one of those areas where every bank has to be careful about, you know, how their customers perceive them because it's one of those areas where it can, you know, once that sentiment starts to shift, we've seen it happen, you know, social media makes it possible for consumer sentiment to shift very rapidly in, in a way that can really do a lot of damage. What, what about some of the things that happened with, with FTX in, in particular? Um, I mean, there was a report that came out that said Tom Brady received about $50 million for a week, so week, week of work. Um, and it kind of harkens back to to another company that we talked about in one of our club meetings, Lucid. Um, not necessarily a fintech company, but uh, there's filings with the SEC that show that their CEO made $380 million when they were taking a, uh, a net loss of $1.3 billion. Um, so it, there's a lot of companies out there, it seems to me, that are um, very self-centered in what they do. And they think that this money the government handed out in 2020, 2021 is just going to keep hanging around and they, they're entitled to that money 
Um, so much PPP loan fraud happened. Uh, now that's getting uncovered. Um, so, so on that front, what 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 happened during those times, and and how is that being rectified now? Well, I mean, so anytime you have a, a group of people who are going to create companies, you're going to have bad actors among that group. Um, and I think you can look at, you can point to examples of, you know, dodgy executives in any industry. Um, I think it's easy to see uh, the, the the crypto space as being kind of uniquely susceptible to this type of thing. There are a couple of reasons for that. I think one of them is that there's a lot of people who are still kind of in this anti-cryptocurrency camp who are looking for for examples, it doesn't help, of course, when you have an FTX just explode so catastrophically, so publicly, um, and the, the sheer dollar amounts are staggering. They have a way of capturing people's attention. Um, but I think, you know, the honest truth is that the vast majority of people in the industry are not acting in that way. I mean, they're all self-centered, right? I think every, every business is self-serving. Every bank is self-serving. Nobody's out there to work for free. But the number of people who are kind of genuinely um, trying to exploit gaps in the venture capital ecosystem, you know, you've got uh, Theranos, another example. And the, and the truth is venture capitalists are not perfect, right? They can be fooled. And, and when that happens, you know, you can get somebody who says the right things, who dresses the right way, who has the right mm -hmm. meetings and those right connections. Venture capitalists are not all-knowing people. They're, they're people who've been successful in other areas of life, but they're capable of mistakes as well. And when they get taken advantage of, there's a lot of schadenfreude that everybody likes to engage in. Like, oh my God, look at how corrupt this industry is. Oh, look yeah. at how stupid that VC was. I can't <laughs> believe they fell for that. But the honest truth is that, you know, if you go out and you really try to lie to somebody and you make yeah. it a mission to, you know, I can... Uh, dramatically improve the healthcare ecosystem you can say all the buzzwords for a while you could actually get funded yeah. you maybe still can get funded doing that the end game isn't going to be super fun for you but you can have a great couple of years before you get found out so so as, as someone who's seen probably thousands of fintech companies at this point you're i'd, I'd call you the shark tank of, of fintech um what what has been the key differentiator being in it for so long of the companies that really make it to unicorn, multi-deca unicorn, uh, versus companies that you've seen that that had that were really bombastic, really driven, uh, but still ended up failing sadly. What what have been the key tells of a company that is going to really make it? Yeah, I mean it's a great question, and there's not one right answer here, right? There's a lot of different ways that you can approach it, but some of the 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 biggest uh, indicators are. Um, how much they seem to understand human beings, right? I think there's a lot of people who understand technology really well, understand finance really well, but don't necessarily understand what's going to motivate human beings to go out and adopt their technology. And, and the best fintech companies are the ones who understand human nature, anticipate that human nature, and are able to not just look at, you know, the, the humans at the end of the value chain, the customers themselves, but also look at everybody who's a part of it because really good fintech companies have to make allies within uh, multiple areas within the financial institutions that they deal with, right? You've got to make that connection with a you know, strategy officer, with a chief technical officer type of person. 
But you also have to understand what's going to motivate somebody on the front lines, you know, a bank branch worker, a customer service agent, and what's going to motivate them to really uh, advocate for your technology as they're talking to customers. And then, of course, what motivates the customer to want to do something as well? There are so many human beings in that chain. It's really difficult to keep track of all of them. And I've seen a lot of really good technology fail because they didn't account for a human somewhere in there. They didn't account for motivation somewhere in there. Um, the, the best companies who are really successful are the ones who understand human beings and, and all of our imperfections account for those and are able to create products that are easy for a customer to use, easy for a bank to tell their customers how to use it, easy for those chief strategy officers to see the value. That's where you can really start to, if you can tick all those boxes, it's a really strong indicator that that company is going someplace. Yeah, I think there's a there's a huge pattern, at least from what I've seen with all these startups that have failed. And that is the CEO, they, they, they're, they're, they're all the whole, the whole connotation behind the similarities behind them are that they are number one, they're greedy, and number two, it's their ego. So I know that Braid found Braid failed because I remember Amanda Payne, who was the CEO of that company. Uh, she said that when you were talking about product market fit, there are two ways to find perfect product market fit. And the two types were fake product market fit and real product market fit. So there are many fintechs out there that that just dupe themselves into thinking that their product market fit is real when it's not because you know all the signs are there. They have the the enviable early traction. They have the organic growth. They have the real payment volume. And it's so easy to look at the numbers for these CEOs and, and they say, wow, there's such a huge demand for what we've built. And then they find out that their early adopters are crooks. And then you also see this with Theranos, with Elizabeth Holmes and how, you know, I, I don't know if you ever saw this, but Elizabeth Elizabeth Holmes, when she was doing all their speeches, whenever she went to guest speak on something, she would deepen her voice to be taken more seriously. I don't know if you ever saw that part of the documentary, but there there are so many instances where there's clips of her just tripping up and then she, she forgets that she's using her actual voice and then it's and then she switches back to that deep voice. And I think that the only reason why she failed was because she started out with great intentions, yes, but that greed it pivoted her into committing fraud. And that I think that's the same pattern with Sam Bakeman Freed. And I, I always found interesting how you can you can take out $32 million of what he had a month before FTX crashed, and you're pleading not guilty. Interesting, yeah. it's, it's astonishing. You know, you bring up a really good point because ego plays a massive role. And one of the challenges for any fintech founder is, you know, you have an idea, you gain some traction, you maybe build a MVP, and then um, you take it and pitch it to a bunch of, of venture capitalists in that moment where you get funded. It's very easy to all of a sudden think, you know, oh my God, I'm so cool. I got funded. I talked to this venture capitalist. Well, you know, the honest truth is when you get funded, you still aren't shit. You know what I mean? Like yeah. you don't really understand what it takes. The vast majority of companies a venture capitalist uh, will invest in are going to fail. They know that. They will expect a hit rate of somewhere between five and 10%. So you think mm -hmm. that you 90% of the people who get funded, who have that moment, like, yes, we're doing it, we're making the rush. 90% of those people are wrong. And the hardest thing to do is to stay humble in that moment, to recognize that you've now got an opportunity to go and create something, but you haven't actually accomplished anything yet at that point. It's a very good first step. And when you get funding, of course, you know, go out, have a drink and celebrate. But that's when the hard work begins. And that's when you really have to buckle down. And so many founders fall into this trap of 
you know, I got all this money. I got $10 million. I'm going to go and you know get a penthouse office in San Francisco. I'm going to, you know, we, we, we can just afford to, everybody's going to be riding around in limousines and helicopters for the next little bit. And all of a sudden, you know, three years later, the money's all gone. Your investors say, what have you built? And you're like, well, uh, actually not, not that much. Um, so it, that's, that's a real danger. Um, and we, we do see this sometimes at Finnovate when you see somebody who gets up there and you think, you know, you have a good product, but you need to, um, just take yourself out of the equation, take your ego out of the equation, get more input from the industry, ask more questions, take more feedback and accept the fact that the first version of your technology is probably not going to be the version that ends up making making it big for you. So you have a lot of work to do once you close that series A. I actually have a hot take. I think that all VC founders, they should read this book. You've probably heard of it. It's very famous. It's called Ego is the Enemy by Ryan Holiday. You ever hear of that book? I heard of it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I think that be, that the whole connotation behind the idea of how, you know how most people say that, let's say they were humbled and they they worked their way up and, and they're they're really successful, but then when they stopped being humbled and they kind of got into this arrogant, egotistical lens that they started to, their business started to falter, they started to fail. I think that that whole idea is because you get so comfortable when you're there. And I remember... Amanda Payne even noted in this interview I watched with her that she had raised the $10 million, exactly what you're saying. And she thought she had that great product market fit. And a few months later, the company's dead. And it's just over just like that. Your years of hard work are just drained through the toilet. Yeah, it's tough. And there's unfortunately a lot of stories along those lines out there. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think, you know, this is where the venture capital industry in general um, probably could do a better job of looking more closely at some of the companies that they invest in, could probably have more realistic expectations on the returns. You know, and I think I've, I've seen so many founders who get, you know, $50 million Series C and they're like, oh, my God, my company got valued at a billion dollars. We're a unicorn now. And you think that's terrific. But now that means that you better make it a billion dollar company or else they're yeah. not going to be happy with you. The pressure becomes massive at that stage. Some of the smartest companies that I know of are the ones who took very limited venture capital funding. They took it for a specific reason um, and they were very conscious of the fact that they weren't going to try and give away a massive percentage of their company's equity. Um, you know, I had a woman at our uh, one of our events who I said, what are you looking for at the event? She said, I need $6.25 million in funding and here's why I need it. And she had people lining up. They were willing to throw $25 million at her. And she said, nope, huh. I don't need that money. I need 6.25. And that's all I'm prepared to, that's all the equity I'm prepared to share of my company. She was able to keep control. Um, she didn't have to bring the, I mean, they were on the board, but she didn't have to cede control of the company. She was mm -hmm. able to limit the amount of debt that she was then responsible for repaying. Um, you know, it's one of those things where people do get sucked in by the, the flash of being able to say, you know, we close a $100 million round. That's terrific, but trust me, that bill's going to come due, and you better be prepared to pay it when it does. Greg, I want to talk about, um, this is our last topic, um, but one of your main areas of expertise is coaching founders on how to deliver a phenomenal message to investors. Having a great product is only 50% of the battle because you can have a phenomenal product, but no one knows about your product. So what are some of the, the key things that you tell founders when they're getting on the big stage for seven minutes at Finnovate uh, to, to pitch what they have done and really show how this new product is going to deliver value? Yeah, well, certainly it's a challenge for a lot of founders, and it's something which is difficult for many people because they simply haven't had a lot of practice at it. 
But no matter what your technology is, you will eventually find yourself in a position where you're going to be standing up in front of a group of people. It could be, you know, four people in, event, in a VC office. It could be 1,500 people at a Finnovate event. But you'll be standing up there with a goal of, I need to make you care about what I'm working on. And this is where practice really does help. There's a lot of techniques that you can learn that make it much more easy to uh, bite off something like that. But I think the the biggest piece is when you get in that moment, there's a really strong temptation to, you know, these are the things that I want to say about myself. This is the part of the company that I built that I'm proud of. It almost always needs to be flipped and it needs to be focusing on the person in front of you. What value are you offering that person? Why should they care about you? It's not necessarily your story, but it's about how you can help them, how you can be a part of their story. So this is, I think, one of those really those big places to start from. Then the other piece that I always recommend, the first thing that I, I talk to all the companies who come to Finnovate is, what are you trying to accomplish with this demo? What does a win look like with you? What messages do you want to leave with the people sitting in front of you? In many cases, people don't think about it in that kind of strategic way. You think, oh, I'm going to show what I can do. And I'm going to walk through this aspect of my product. But it's so important that you have a really strong, high-level goal. Here's the theme of my demo. My demo is going to show you how you can save money on your operating costs. These really basic, big-picture pieces are frequently overlooked. And the honest truth is that makes it really difficult for people on the other side of the equation to get excited about them, even if it will actually help them. If they don't see it laid out for them in that kind of really simple way, then it can be a real challenge to get them motivated enough to continue the conversation and, and dive in at a level that they would have to to start to figure out where their benefits are. Yeah, I get the idea you're saying. It's kind of like you have to act local while thinking global, if you get that saying. And uh, it's, I would say that how, how exactly do these founders that show up to your conferences that give these five to seven minute pitches, how do they go out and then really make it so niche and so tailored that they're able to, not only encapsulate the people that the, the small number of people that are going to come up with them afterwards, but how do they get to the whole crowd when so many of these people that show up to these conferences have different needs, different wants, and, and just tailor it and niche it down towards that? Well, certainly, I mean, I think everybody on our stage is kind of usually pitching to an audience within the audience, right? You know, so you might be on stage in front of a thousand people and think, well, of that thousand people, there's really only 200 credit union executives that I really want to connect with. That's my target market within the within the audience. Um, but, uh, you know, one of the, the big pieces, you know, comes back to the fact that you, when when you're in school, if you get a paper, you get assigned a paper to write, your teacher will tell you, here's some examples. Here's how you can structure this paper. Here's a way to think about writing an introductory paragraph. Here's a way to think about laying out your thoughts in the body of the paper so that, you know, when you have, you know, two weeks to write a paper, you'll get support as you go through that. In a lot of cases, people don't get that support when it comes to public speaking in any shape. The a teacher will say, you have two weeks, give me a presentation. It needs to be 10 minutes long. And you say, well, how do I do it? I don't know. Come back with 10 minutes. Good luck. And, and that type of situation becomes really difficult. But the truth is that there are a lot of strategies that you can employ, which break down the process, which make it easier to create a script that will do what you need that script to do, that you can rehearse so that you can perform it in a way that will do it what you need to do. Um, and, and again, you know, thinking really hard as you step up in front of a group with multiple types of audiences in there, which audience do I really want here? Who's in my must-have category and who's in kind of this nice-to-have category? For many people, let's say, you know, these are my potential customers. I want to really focus on them. If I can get some attention from, you know, an industry analyst publication or from a venture capitalist, great. But the people that I really want to focus in on are this group of people right here who can move the needle for me. Um, 
if you can come at it with that level of targeting, say, this is who I'm talking to, this is what I need them to understand, then there are a lot of techniques that you can use to make it very easy to, to do that. You don't have to like public speaking in order mm -hmm. to be successful at it. You don't have to be a natural showman. You have to be able to articulate why somebody should care about you. Um, and you know, obviously the self-serving answer here is you should hire me. If you're struggling with this, you should bring me in <laughs> because I've seen so many demos um, and, and I've seen so many people who've done it really well and so many people who struggled and haven't been- Do we plug your booking link? <laughs> yeah, you should, yeah, absolutely. Plug it in. Wait, oh, we'll, we'll do it, we'll do it. We'll do an ad at the beginning of the episode. Yeah. yeah. What What is the most successful pitch you've seen that you were sitting in, in the crowd and you were just like, damn, those guys absolutely <laughs> murdered it. And what really stood out to you about that pitch? So there are a few, um, uh, one of the things, one of the metrics we have here, best of show, companies uh, win best of show. It's entirely voted on by the audience at our events. And there are a couple of companies who have been extremely successful by that metric, who've won multiple best of show at our events. Um, one of the first companies, I think, to really do this very well is a company called MX. Um, they started out as Money mm -hmm. Desktop and they uh, did amazing demos from the very early on where they packed a huge amount into uh, their seven minutes. They had a very visually pleasing demo. The technology under the hood was really good, but they presented it in a way that was almost impossible not to be kind of won over by what they were showing you. Um, they're also a company that was very ambitious. They were trying to speak to every aspect of the fintech ecosystem, banks, credit unions, other fintech providers. They wanted to reach everybody with what they were doing, and they've been pretty successful with that. Another company who has done a really good job with the Finnovate demo format is a company called uh, Glia. They were formerly SailMove, um, but their speaker did an excellent job of showing the technology at the same time that he was consistently just pinging the value proposition. So you, you know, every 30 seconds, you're getting the value prop message. It's not the main focus of the demo. They're still walking through the technology, but you can't possibly ignore that steady drip. Here's why it matters. Here's why it matters. Here's why it matters. And so they're another company who's won many best of shows at our events. And, and so you know, those are two. Uh, if you want to go and check out, by the way, all these videos are available at Finnovate.com. You can go to Finnovate.com slash videos and take a look. But I would say, you know, if you're interested in seeing some really good ones, those would be two places to start. Now, that said, I always have to include this caveat. Those demos worked for them because it was consistent with who their speakers were, what the technology did. There are a lot of right answers here. And so anybody who watches those videos and thinks, you know, that's not me. I can't do it the way that those, those people did it. That's okay. You don't have to mimic that style to be successful. There are a lot of right answers depending on who you are as a person, what your technology does. So as you watch that, don't be intimidated by some of those. I would encourage you to take a look at all the demos and start to think of all the different styles that there are out there because there's a style that suits you, whoever you are, and there's a way that you can be successful at this regardless of how much fun it is, how comfortable it is for you. Can, can college students attend a Finnovate event? Yes, they can. Um, we offer student discounts. Uh, anybody who's interested in joining us, uh, we have our two our two U.S. events are San Francisco in the spring and then New York in the fall. Um, reach out to info at Finnovate.com. We'll ask you for your student credentials, and I believe it's a 70% discount on tickets for students to attend. Wow. It's interesting that you said that the two most popular pitches or the ones that just stuck out the most to you were appealing to a broader audience because with podcasting, it's the exact opposite. Because if you don't niche down into a specific type of person, 
then you're not you're not going to be able to scale at all because I've seen so many podcasts out there that are just so broad. They try to reach everyone, and you can see this with just lifestyle podcasts in general that just talk about all the multifaceted parts of life and different stories you have. None of them scale because there's no personalized factor. If you reach someone that is just so specific that when you're talking to them and they listen to your episode and then they say wow, that, 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 that's me. That, that's, that's someone that I really resonate with. Then it, you don't scale. And I, and I find that, that whole difference there. Very, very interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, there, there, again, there's so many different ways to be successful yeah. in the FinTech ecosystem and success. The definition of success will uh, vary wildly. Um, there, there's many, many people have had extremely successful Finnovate events um, that haven't had the best of show recognition because they are targeting a smaller segment of the industry. They're not going to get that kind of overall audience vote, but they're still going to find the people that they need to take their event forward. For some people, you know, there may only be five to 10 people in the world who really understand exactly what that technology does and who it's for. But if you can find those five to 10 people and you can make that connection with them, you can absolutely create a successful company around it. So, um, you know, this is one of those areas where each company is going to be a little bit different. Each company's goals will be a little bit different. Um, but there are companies that will, will always kind of rise to the top who are going to be appealing to everybody and, and every side of the ecosystem. So, you know, as much as best of show is a really good metric for who's doing amazing things, it is certainly not the only metric that matters at a show like Finnovate. What are some of the biggest areas of opportunity that you see now in the current macro state that we're in where cost of capital is so high and, and ventures is trying to hold on to, to money a little bit? Um, with with that with that question, I want to make it a little bit of a two part question as well. Um, it's it's been shown that that companies that stay bootstrapped for longer actually become more successful companies when they finally get venture funding as well. So, do you think that out of this potential recession that we're headed into, there will be a lot more innovation on on so many different fronts? Yes, is the short answer. Yes, there will be more innovation. When there is difficult times, there are opportunities that come with that. And and like we saw a little bit in 2020, you know, COVID exposed a lot of frailties within our financial ecosystem. And those frailties then became targets for innovators to come in and say, I'm going to, you know, I see this problem. I'm going to go straight towards that problem. Um, right now, we're in a moment where I think, you know, th there probably will be more of those types of uh, problems discovered. I would say that, you know, I, I don't tend to think about it from the standpoint of where's the opportunity, because I think the opportunity frequently comes from this really high level. Where are people not being well served by the financial ecosystem? The current financial services industry is leaving gaps. Where are those gaps? And this is one of those areas where it's difficult sometimes from inside the fintech ecosystem, inside the financial services ecosystem to see those. And that's why new blood is so important because people coming mm -hmm. into it from the outside who may, might have a personal experience with a, a failure somewhere in there, they can turn that personal experience into a, a company that can go and tackle that problem. So at a, at a really high level, the number one problem that fintech is solving is the same one that it's always been solving, which is just how does the financial services industry work for more people more easily? How does it actually help people at the end of the day? Um, technology for banks is a very valid way to kind of make a profitable company. And if you can come up with, if, if you work in a bank and have experience and say, you know, I've seen this, I know that we can, you know, there's an inefficiency here. I can fix that inefficiency and shave off, you know, 0.2% of every transaction for myself. That adds up. Like you can absolutely yeah. become very profitable that way. 
but the companies that will really change the financial landscape are companies who people in the industry right now can't see. So there's this, this element of you know creativity that's needed. And I would encourage anybody listening to this podcast to really think about their own lives and think about what they've seen as holes in the ecosystem. If you can find a problem that nobody else is aware of, that nobody else is tackling, that's a great place to start. And then think about what technological tools are available to you, how you could potentially use the, that tech to, to close that loop. But starting first from the where is the potential for a big impact is massive. Okay. So, yeah. So, I mean, I think that what you're saying with how hard times, they really stir up innovation. I, th I think that really relates to how every single international fintech deal that I'm seeing right now, especially in the M&A space is international. So you got Turkey, New Zealand, you got Brazil, you got neobanks going on there. And I think that is because they're those hard times that those hard times that are being generated in these in these parts of the world, that's why innovation is so prevalent there. That's why in Turkey, they they're in Turkey and New Zealand, I'm pretty sure, are ranked the number one and two most innovative countries in the world surrounding fintech because you know you got TEB. I know you know what that is. It's uh they're they're working on installing small screens, I'm pretty sure. Then you got Fiat Shank, they're they're making use of Visa's simply one card. So I ask you. What what do you what do you think the uh, the outlook for that is over the next decade or so? Are these are these countries really going to explode and become the next Americas? And just India too, India yeah. on top of that as well. I, mean, I think you're you're gonna you're gonna get some hate mail on this one because that is a, a dubious claim from my standpoint that somehow Turkey and New Zealand really? are the the front runners. But I mean, there's, there's amazing innovation <laughs> taking place all over. Um, I think that there are uh, you know we we saw. Um, countries like Singapore, who are able to do ridiculously complex things during the pandemic. I was talking to a member of the Monetary Authority of Singapore in late 2020 about how they had been able to use their uh, country's open rails. Um, they really dramatically improved their payment rails inside that company to be able to, you know, as America was struggling to kind of get stimulus checks out to everybody who'd filed taxes and, you know, maybe they're coming in 12 weeks, maybe it's 24 weeks, who knows what the amount is going to be you know, cross your fingers, but you know, you, you probably get something. Singapore was able to, you know, instantly overnight just deposit money in everybody's bank account. They were able to, you know, get consumers first. They were able to then come back and say, um, okay, which are the industries that are most affected by this? Let's target restaurants, let's target hotels. And they were able to really, you know, dial in these specific subsets and deposit money in. So um, all that to say, you know, there's amazing things happening in countries like Singapore, elsewhere in Asia, Eastern Europe has a lot going on outside of Turkey. Um, we're seeing really strong uh, pieces of, of innovation in South America, in Africa. Um, but I think at the end of the day, you know, a lot of these places, um, again, are places where they're ripe for uh, this kind of disruption, where the existing services are just woefully inadequate in dealing with the needs of the populations that exist there. And so that's where there's that opportunity to come through. Um, now, again, I would never say like you know, New Zealand shouldn't be proud of their fintech. Of course they should. That's awesome. Turkey, yes, be proud of what you've built. Absolutely. But when you start looking for, you know, what's the best, then it just turns into this, uh, you know, not very useful conversation about like trying to yeah. rank yeah. things as though there's some sort of like overarching fintech ranking entity yeah. that is ranking. Which, if it's anybody, by the way, it's us. We do the Finnovate Awards as well. So for me to be saying there's no one right answer here, 
you should believe me on that because we're, we're the ones who commission <laughs> to actually look across all of these areas. And I'll tell you right now, it's really difficult to compare one to the other, but yeah. it's, it's always the case that Just, the companies that are making it big are the ones who are really solving problems for people on the ground. And it's such a broad space too, which makes it once again, so difficult to rank all these companies. Greg, it's been so awesome having you here today. One thing that we do with every single guest that we bring on at, um, right at the end of the episode is we ask them a really pointed question that's directed specifically toward our audience. All right, I'm now, ready. Our, our, main, our main audience is college students. Um, some of us are first year, second year, young kids who, who may not necessarily know what they wanna do with their life, but they know that they're interested in finance and they're interested in uh, technology, which is why they've joined FinTech Club or why they're going out and, and learning things like uh, computing. Uh, they're going out and taking finance classes. So we ask every guest, what is one piece of advice you would have for the current age college student that would put them in a really awesome space? Just one piece of very actionable advice. Well, I think the, there's there's two answers that I'll give you. I'm going to cheat. I'm going to give you two. I'm going to give you one super specific and one bigger Go picture. The super specific one is don't forget to learn how to write. It's extremely important that you're able to represent your thoughts. And so, you know, don't get so focused in on the uh, consumer or computer science space, the math space, that you completely ignore the other opportunities that you have at your school to learn from people who are excellent communicators. That's a really valid skill. And if you can really be a, a excellent on the technical side and also on the you know, language art side, on the English side, then that's a really strong advantage. The more uh, amorphous response is stay curious, ask why, you know, don't accept the answer. This is the way that it's always been done because that is a bullshit answer there. You need to figure out why things are the way they are. That's where you can start to figure out where those opportunities are. The more curious you are, the more you challenge some of those conventional assumptions, the more likely you are to find something that's going to be a unique opportunity for you where you're going to have a really outside chance of creating something that's going to last, that's going to really make an impact. James, would you, would you say that people in general ever figure out why things are the way they are? Because I think everyone has a different perception of what that means. I, I think that we talk about this in computing, just to harken back yeah. to that, is that it's very difficult to um, represent truth in the world in a computer. Uh, there's countless theorems that, that show that there are things that are true in the world that we just simply cannot prove with the computing power or the, the symbols that we have in math. So when we talk about truth or fully understanding something, I think that once again, hearkening back to the conversation we had about ego, it's important to drop your ego. I don't yeah. think there's ever a, a universal truth other than the laws of math, but there are things that you can do to improve your probability at being successful. There are things that make you a, a better target for luck to hit you. And I talk about the luck surface area specifically mm -hmm. when I talk about this. And your luck surface area is your surface area to the rest of the world. If you cocoon yourself in your room, like the stereotypical computer science person <laughs> does, uh, and just write code all day, who are you getting exposed to? You could write a program that, that cures cancer for all we know, but no one's gonna know about it. No one's gonna know about you. Mm -hmm. Right. So you need to go out there and, and be social, too. That's that's something that, that I that I believe in. And people will shit on college kids all the day for partying or whatever. But that's how you that's how you go out and you meet people. It does have value. 
Well, and it's fun too. People who shit on it are just jealous because they've moved past that point in their lives and they want to go back. <laughs> but who, who would who would deny college kids the opportunity to go out and have a little fun, enjoy yourselves? But no, I think you, you have a really good point too, it, that human connection is absolutely critical. And you can have the best technology in the world, but if other people don't see it, if they don't see it as being valuable for themselves, if they don't understand why it's a big deal, that technology is ultimately not going to go anywhere. Um, so, you know, I think there's a lot of value in making sure that you're comfortable talking to people either in a one-on-one -on -one setting, in a group setting, you're comfortable writing emails, you're comfortable picking up the phone and calling people. All of these things are really massive. And again, at the end of the day, you have to have good technology to succeed, but having good technology doesn't necessarily make you succeed on its own. I think that's a pretty good note to end on. Um, thank you so much, Greg, for being here today. Uh, also, thank you to the IU Media School for allowing us to use your spaces today. Thank you always, as always, to Dr. Dokalich, Dr. Monaco for their unwavering support in bringing this off the ground in, in three months. Uh, and thank you to, to Eric, my co-host. Thank you to Drew and Cameron for, for everything they do in, in helping manage the day-to-day -day operations, uh, already growing to over 100 members. Uh, just amazing stuff that they're, that they're doing and helping out with the organization. Thank you. Thank you for listening as well. Bye.